Thanks, Duncan. Good morning, everyone. You all right? Yeah, great. Isn't our Father so good to us, hey? Just the way that he moves amongst us, and he's always doing things. Jesus said, my Father is always at work. And uh, it's a privilege to be speaking this morning. It's a privilege to be speaking in a context where God's really on the move as well. And um, a couple of weeks ago, I, I was really privileged to be praying with a guy who uh, wanted some prayer um, at the end of the talk for uh, freedom from some fear in his life. And uh, it transpired that there was never a time that he could identify where he'd, um, he'd given his life to Jesus before and uh, made Jesus the boss of his life. And so we told him the good news of Jesus and he gave his life there and then, right here in this room. And it's so exciting. I'm, uh, I understand we're seeing that more and more in our evening meeting. Um, and uh, as I head there tonight, I, I gather that they're going to be sharing um, a testimony about someone who was healed last week from shin splints. And uh, God's so on the move, isn't he? Where there was a word, of, uh, a word of knowledge where God speaks to you for a situation or for a person. Um, for one of our students, it was given here a number of months ago, um, which talked about God beginning to open some doors into her life, into different areas of ministry. And um, she came and... Um, uh, told us a couple of weeks later that uh, immediately after that word, the charity Open Doors came and uh, offered her a job in fulfillment of that word. And uh, it's so exciting what God's up to, isn't it? All of which makes me wonder, I wonder what he's going to do this morning. So uh, we're, we're in our, uh, our One Samuel series, and uh, we're at chapter 17 this week. And so we're on the story of David and Goliath, which uh, lots of you might have heard of before. Um, if you haven't, it's basically the story where a, a small, unimpressive, in inadequately armed guy takes down a massive armed giant. And uh, sporting commentators love this story. They use it all the time, and uh, perhaps no more so than in Leicester City's recent title triumph. They were bottom of the league the season be- uh, at Easter the season before. As the season began, they were 5,000 to 1 to win the title. That is the longest odds on any sporting, successful sporting event in history. And they faced the giants of the big spenders and the increased pressure, and they conquered, and they did it. And um, that's a little bit like what's going on in our story today. So let's dig into it. So I'm just going to read verses 1 to 3 to kick off. It says, Now the Philistines gathered their... We've just got it coming up on the screen. Thanks. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. And they were gathered at a place called Socho, uh, which belongs to the people of God, and they're encamped between this place, Socho, and another one called Azekah. And if you're a bit confused, don't worry, we're going to explain them. Uh, This one's even more confusing. In the territory of Ephes Damim, whatever that means. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of a place called Ella, which has nothing to do with Rihanna, just in case you're wondering. They drew up in line of battle against the Philistines, and the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, and, the Israel, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, and the valley was between them. So you've got these guys, the Philistines. They are the arch enemy of the people of God who are called Israel. And they are on one side, camped in this place called Socho. So you can see that gray dot there. That's where they're camped, just by Socho. Uh, north of that is, is the Israelite camp. This is modern-day Israel, yeah? So uh, J- Jerusalem is, is just east of here. The sea is, is just west. And the Philistines are actually camped in territory 
that already belongs to the people of God. So they're, they're invading it. And they stood on the mountain on the one side, Israel on the other, with the valley in between them. And if you read on in the story, down into the valley comes this giant of a Philistine called Goliath of Gath. And you can see Gath just, just on the west there. And he was a man of war from his youth. He was huge. And he was dressed in full armor, ready to fight. And he actually makes an offer to, to the Israelites. And so it says in verse 8 and 9, I'll just read this out. He stood and shouted to them, Why have you come up to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? So choose for yourselves a man and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. So what he's basically saying is, look, we know that when we fight, there is going to be bloodshed. People are going to lose their lives. So why don't we just save that and stake it all on a 1v1? Yeah? It's a bit like, why don't we just save the cup tie, save the extra time, and let's just go straight to sudden death penalties. It was actually a really common way of doing warfare in the time, for the reasons outlined, about the bloodshed and all that. The trouble was that to refuse that offer in that culture at that time was utterly humiliating. And so the Israelites were terrified. And maybe you can draw an illustration today with the professional boxer or the, the schoolboy on, on the playground who can't refuse the offer of a fight because of the shame of appearing to be scared. Now, this guy, Goliath, I've already said, he's huge. And if you want to draw a bit of a modern comparison, well, the tallest man ever recorded was this chap, Robert Wadlow, who lived in the USA, 1918 to 1940. Zoltan's coming over to see, to make sure he can see. He was 8 foot 11, huge. And you can perhaps see some comparison of how tall he was by the normal people that are standing next to him. Now, the commentators differ, but Goliath was even bigger. He was somewhere in the region of 9 foot 9 to 10 foot 5. He was massive. And the armor that he was wearing alone weighed over 60 kilograms. That's about 9.5 stone, and probably much, much more, actually. Even his name meant the exposer of people. And there he was, a giant in the way of what rightfully belonged to the people of God, fully armed and demanding a fight. I want to ask the question, what are the giants in our lives? What are the things that get in the way of where we need to be? What are the things that feel like they are so imposing, feel, the things that feel like they will expose us? The things that we feel we just can't defeat. Maybe it's that you or someone in your family is going through a, a period of utterly debilitating sickness. Maybe it's that family life, for whatever reason, is just really, really tough right now and you can't see a way through. Maybe it's that you're facing financial struggles and week on week you just can't see where the money is going to come from. Well, for the people of Israel in the passage, Goliath the giant represented fear. And it says in, in verse 11, when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, 
They were dismayed and greatly afraid. So what were they in fear of? Well, maybe it was fear of failure and the impending shame that would come. If we take this fight on, we might fail. Maybe it was fear of being hurt. And if we fight these guys, some of us are going to go down, and that's going to hurt. Perhaps it was fear of inadequacy, fear of being found out. If we fight or we send someone to fight, maybe they might lose, and we might be shown to be not all that we hoped we were. Fear of not being in control. Perhaps it was fear of God not providing in the situation. You see, the thing was that God had already promised these guys that he would grant them victory wherever they went. And he had told them that any enemy that they encountered, that they were to defeat. So they are actually backing out of doing something that God had called them to do. And that's what fear does, isn't it? It breeds retreat, defensiveness, and it causes us to flee. It makes us forget who we really are. It makes our hearts fail, and it's not the territory of courageous faith. Do you know, as I've been preparing this, I've been examining myself and letting the Bible read me, and I've come across all sorts of fears in my life. I think this is a bigger issue for me than I realized. And I want to make a choice to be vulnerable this morning because I want you to know that when you spot these things in your life, it's okay. Because God's got a glorious solution. So for example, we've just had um, a beautiful little girl, she's four months old, called Lizzie. And I think that deep down, there is a fear of inadequacy in, inadequacy in me about being her dad. A fear that I won't be able to be all that she needs me to be. And I know it's ridiculous, and I know there's lots of things that I could say to myself and encourage myself with truths of scripture. But sometimes, the fires of our fears are just stoked by particular events. And so for this one, the event was what has come to be known in our marriage as wedding gate. It was a few weeks ago. My wife, Emma, and I were at a wedding in Bedford. We took our, our, our little daughter, Lizzie, down. And mid-ceremony, she unexpectedly woke up. And it was just as the sermon was starting, and she started to cry. And I can only assume that she didn't like what the guy was saying. I mean, there's no other conclusion, is there? But nonetheless, you're getting a bit distracting, so I took her out and wheeled her off. And, and she was just getting louder and louder. And I think, oh, I've got to go and find a room out the back, and let's see if we can settle her. And um, th think a, a sort of quiet, contemplative, prayer ministry type room. You know, there's nice sort of gentle art on the walls. You can imagine people pouring their hearts out in this room. And uh, we were in there, and Lizzie wasn't having any of my pushing the pram around. So I got her out, and her screams are getting louder and louder and louder. And I put my finger in her mouth, and she absolutely chomped on it. I think, oh, she's really hungry. Okay, so and you're getting louder. And, and so I go to the pram. Lizzie's in one arm, trying to look for the bottle in the pram, and can't find it. So a couple of things get chucked out, and louder and louder. And eventually, the entire bag gets tipped out. The entire changing bag, everything we brought to the wedding, and the bottle's not in there. Great. At which point, I realized that she had leaked. This is also a fear of mine, the fear of the leak. Her nappy had gone. 
It was all through the clothes. And of course, it's the, it's, the danger is the nice dress that she's wearing, isn't it? It's all about protecting the nice dress because it's a sleep suit otherwise. And uh, without the bottle, I think, let's move on to the next thing. So ch let's change her. And she's getting louder and louder and louder. And so she's on the changing mat. And I pull the nappy off and there's poo everywhere, even on her shoulder. How do you get poo on your shoulder? And then she wheezes everywhere. And I'm trying to protect this dress. And I've texted Emma, but for no fault of her own, her phone's on silent in the wedding, as it should be. And uh, I've miscalled Emma, and I've considered sending another text, the content of which I may later regret. And, you know, it's not happening, and the screams. And eventually, Emma comes through the door. And all she finds is Lizzie screaming on the mat in just a nappy, stuff everywhere, to be closely followed behind by a lovely lady from the church who said, just to let you know, we do have baby changing facilities if you would like. You think, girl, it's too late for that. <laughs> and do you know what? After that, I felt so inadequate. And I know it's not my fault, but I felt so inadequate. But the thing was that letting me, like letting fear stop me from taking action in Lizzie's life just isn't an option, because I'm her dad. But it's still something that gets poked every so often. Another one would be fear of inadequacy in my job. This is one I want to call it out, because I think this is really under-talked about. Fear of feeling inadequate in professional life, in your job. The fear that someone would come to you for some advice. For me, I'm a solicitor in the week. And someone that would come to me, and I wouldn't have a clue what to say. Or maybe it's, uh, I've been really pressing in to, to try and uh, go after uh, seeing people healed from various conditions. And the fear that's deep down is, is probably a fear of disappointment. You know, what if I never see it to the extent that I long for? Because the difficulty with fear is that deep down, we know there's a better option. And that's why I want to be vulnerable this morning, because I want you to know it's okay. I want you to know that you can admit when these things are in your life. And so I want us to be really real and just look at these fears and wonder, are there any that are in our lives? But there's actually a, a bigger fear that's, that's going on here. And um, there's a bigger giant in view, if you like. Because Goliath actually uh, represents, let's not have the slide just yet, give the game away. Um, <laughs> Goliath actually represents something much bigger than fear. And uh, he represents the person who is at the root of every fear. And uh, we'll have the slide, thanks, marvelous. Um, <laughs> He represents the person that the Bible calls the father of lies. And as you can see, that is the giant of Satan himself and the chaos that he causes. And in verse 5 in the passage, the text says that Goliath was wearing a coat of scale armor. Or more literally in the Hebrew, he was wearing scales. And if you know anything about your Bible, then you'll know that a snake is a very common description of Satan. Now, Satan, or the devil we sometimes call him, he is at the root of everything that is wrong in the world. And in fact, everything bad that we see ultimately goes back to the time when he tempted humanity away from God. But the worst thing about this is that it's not just a human problem. It's a personal problem. 
You see, before I was a Christian, try as I might, I could not stop my rebellion against God. I didn't have to learn to be disobedient. You know how we teach children to, uh, to talk and to walk? It seems a bit silly that later on in life we tell them to shut up and sit down, but, but there you go. I didn't have to learn disobedience. It, it was just in me, and it separated me from God, and it threatened to for all eternity. And the worst thing was, there was nothing I could do about it. And so if you remember in the story, we've got Israel on one side, we've got their rightful territory on the other that the Philistines are occupying, and we've got a giant in between messing it all up. Well, is it not the same for us? We're on one side, there's a relationship with our creator that we were made for on the other, and we've got a giant in between that we of ourselves just cannot overcome. And like the Israelites, if the story ended there, we would be stuck. And so what are we going to do? Well, what are we going to do? Well, we're going to lift the mood for one thing, because that's pretty heavy stuff. So let, let's get back to the story. And uh, David, hooray for David, he arrives on the scene. Because he has been sent by his father to take supplies uh, to his brothers. And the story says that he finds the Israelites fighting with the Philistines. Now we've seen what they were doing, and so that is an incredibly generous description of what it was for someone cowering in the background. And he hears Goliath making all these threats, and he sees his people fleeing, and he takes issue with it. And he says, look, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Or in other words, who is this guy who thinks that he can stand against the people of God? And David ends up getting put uh, before King Saul. And, uh, and still his confidence is in God. And he says, let no man's heart fail. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. I'll do it. I'll go. But King Saul's like, David, you are going to get destroyed. I mean, you're just a youth this guy is an experienced fighter. But David says, look, I used to be a shepherd. And when I was a shepherd, often there would be a lion or a bear who would come to the flock and try and steal one of the sheep. And I would go after that lion or that bear and I would wrestle it and I would get the sheep back to the flock. And so this guy is going down in the same way because the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion, will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul's like, okay, go on then. And the Lord be with you. It's like the cheapest blessing ever, isn't it? And so David goes out on behalf of his people. And all he has with him is his shepherd's staff and his sling with five stones in his pouch. And Goliath sees this unimpressive, weak man and he ridicules him. Seeing the staff, he says, am I a dog that you've come to me with a stick? And he curses David, and he threatens that he's going to kill him. But David reacts to the threats of his enemy with the truth of who God is. He says, you come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, 
the Lord will deliver you into my hands so that all the earth may know that my God is king. And he runs towards Goliath and he takes a stone in his sling and he takes aim and bam, right into Goliath's forehead. And Goliath sinks to the ground dead. And David runs up to him and he stands over him in victory, pulls Goliath's own sword out and chops off Goliath's head. And funnily enough, that's the bit they miss out of the kids' books. Do you know? Yeah? <laughs> and seeing it all, the Philistines flee and the people of Israel receive courage and they pursue the Philistines and they completely loot their camp. which is all very well for David. But you might ask the question, well, how does that apply to us when we're facing the giant of Satan and all the chaos that he causes in the world? Or if he's the cause of my every fear, how does this story help me? Well, like the Israelites in the passage, we need someone in our lives who would arrive into the midst of the battle at just the right time. We need someone who, in serving his father, would come to save his own people. Someone who had been prepared by God for this moment, even when those on his side told him not to do it. Someone who heard the accusations of the enemy and yet met them with the promises of God. Someone who, when the moment came, would not flee, but would willingly put himself on the line, even if it meant death. And someone who knew that the battle is the Lord's and that he would be victorious. Dear friends, when Jesus came, he took the full ridicule of the enemy upon himself. He defeated the giant and he beat death. And he took away the shame from his people. And he won an everlasting victory that bound and plundered and ransacked the kingdom of darkness. Because as champion, he stands in victory over all of its work. He crushed the, the snake. He undid his damage. He used the enemy's own weapon of the cross to defeat him. And he reminds his people that every battle that they face truly belongs to the victorious, all-conquering, triumphant Lord Jesus Christ. So in David defeating Goliath, the story is pointing towards a time when Jesus would defeat Satan. And that means that the giant that stands between us and what God has promised us has been beaten by the one who went to fight on our behalf. So what about fear? So I so unkindly just left hanging earlier. Well, the Bible says there's one legitimate fear, and that's the fear of God. And that's the respectful reverence that acknowledges his power. But if the person at the root of all other fears has been defeated, then every fear is now in subjection to Christ. He has overcome, and his perfect love casts out fear. Which means that we don't need to live in a place of fear any longer. You see, I want to hang this on a verse in the New Testament from the book of Romans, which is a letter to the church in Rome, chapter 8, verse 15, and it says, You have not been given a spirit of slavery, by which you fall into fear. Or elsewhere in the New Testament, it says it outright, you have not been given a spirit of fear. 
But instead, you have been given the spirit of adoption as sons. Because living in fear is just not the territory that we've been given. It's inconsistent with who we are. And even if you find yourselves in a situation where you think, oh no, gosh, that's huge. I've got medical test results coming. I've got an exam tomorrow. Where's the next bit of money going to come from? You don't need to stay in that place because the Holy Spirit reminds you that you are a son or a daughter of the Most High God. And wasn't that wonderful, the way that that came through in our worship time? He's our Father. We're His children. Because being a son or a daughter of God changes your perspective. And if I know that I have a father who is utterly besotted with me, and that as a son, I have full access to everything that my father has, and if I know that my dad in heaven is the absolute boss, then I can face anything and know that it's all going to work out okay. Now, I love my earthly dad to bits, and one of the things that I'm really thankful for about him is some of the ways that he showed me what God was like through what he was like and is like. I feel as though I could phone him up at any time. And growing up, he just always seemed to be able to answer the phone. He's the most generous guy that I know. And he just seemed to be able to make things happen. And he'd turn up with the tickets to the Stoke City match. Or he'd be able to give me lifts or, or advice. And so what happened was that I began to rely on him. And how many here know that when we rely on our heavenly father, our perspective on life begins to change? And I've been really asking God to grow me in, in giving words of knowledge. You know, where God speaks to you for a, a person or a situation. Or going after healings or contributing in worship. I've been asking him to help me take steps forward in that. But do you know, every time that I do it, I face fear. I think, what if I get it completely wrong? What if I sound stupid? What if I cause some pain by, by saying, you know, if you've got this condition, we'd love to pray for you, and the person doesn't get healed? What if? But do you know what? When I, when I remember that I'm a son of the Most High God, it changes my perspective. Because I've, I've been going for, for some of them, say, let's say, out on the street. I've, I've gone and asked God and, to give me a, a, a particular detail about someone, you know, their name, for instance. I've gone up to them, and I say, you know, is your name Greg? And it hasn't been. One guy even said, unless you owe him money. <laughs> but you know, when I'm a son, all that matters is that. And as I leave that place, I know that the whole host of heaven's cheering me on because of my obedience. When you're a son or a daughter, it doesn't matter what happens because your identity has changed. You see, David relied on his heavenly father. He said, Goliath is so big, uh, sorry, the Israelites said, Goliath is so big, he's going to destroy us. And David said, Goliath's so big, how can I miss it's true, isn't it? See, knowing you're a son or a daughter of God changes your perspective. And how does it do that? Because it changes your identity. 
See, I know that forever I will be a son of David Potter. That's my dad's. I will bear his name. I may grow to look or to be like him. One day, my sister and I will inherit what he has. The Bible says I'm also a son of God. And that means that as a Christian, I bear his name. And that I will grow to be like him. And that one day, I will inherit all that my father has. But it doesn't just say I'm a son. It says I'm an adopted son. And that's picking up on terminology of the time when childless but wealthy rulers would look around for someone to bless, for someone to pass their wealth onto, and would give this new child of theirs the purpose of knowing that they're to continue the family name. And so, as an adopted son or daughter of God, if you're a Christian, it means that you are chosen. It means that you are forever secure. It means that you are given purpose, and it means that your whole identity is different now. And that in turn changes your direction from retreat to advance. Because being a son in the kingdom of God means that you are on the winning team. And you are advancing in the power of Christ's victory. You're no longer in retreat. And just as David defeated the giants, which allowed his people to walk through into what rightfully belonged to them, knowing that we are sons and daughters of the Most High God, allows us to walk through our fears because Christ has defeated them. And one of the most profound things in this story is that Goliath is dead. And forgive me for stating the obvious, but that means he can't have the same impact as he once had. And if Goliath symbolizes the fears in our lives, then we need to picture them lying slain on the floor, head cut off and utterly defeated. It's brutal terminology, but it's scripturally true. Fear of failure, dead. Fear of being hurt, gone. Fear of inadequacy, wiped out. Fear of not being in control, destroyed. And fear that God would not provide in the situation, rendered utterly powerless. I'm not meaning that we don't encounter fear anymore. There'll be situations we'll look at and think, ugh. But we don't need to stay in that place. You can imagine people in the story still fearing Goliath until they found out that David had won. But it just means that our fears don't need to enslave us any longer. Do you know when I was talking about my daughter Lizzie earlier and saying that because I'm her dad, actually not taking action because of fear is not really an option? Well, actually, it's the same for us. Not taking action is not really an option because of who we are. We are sons and daughters. He's forever committed to us. He's totally in control. Fear is dead. It's defeated. And you're different now. And at the start of the week, someone said to me, if you were to summarize what you're going to say in a sentence to a nine-year-old, what would it be? And I said that there's a bad guy who makes us fear things. But God has taken away his power and he's made us his children. So we don't have to fear anymore. You've not been given a spirit of fear. 
but you've been given the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters. Shall we stand together?